Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. Everyone wants this contamination gone from the community. They don't want the worry, and they don't want the smell. And we owe it to the people of East Palestine to move it out of the community as quickly as possible. It's Monday, February 27th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Later on, we'll hear about a court case that could restrict access to the pill used in more than half the country's abortions. And we review the Oscar nominees for Best Original Song. But first, it's been more than three weeks now since that chemical spill in East Palestine, Ohio. And one question that's emerging is what to do with all the toxic waste. As we heard EPA's regional administrator Deborah Shore say a minute ago, the agency's been shipping contaminated soil and water out of the area. At the same time, I know there are folks in other states with concerns, legitimate concerns about how this waste is being transported and how it will be disposed of. Officials in Michigan and Texas say they weren't notified before some of that waste ended up in their backyards. Shore says the EPA is redirecting the waste to other sites and working to find a solution for everyone. Timothy Townsend studies this kind of thing as a professor of environmental engineering at the University of Florida. He spoke to Scott Tong. This train carried several tax chemicals. Vinyl chloride to make pipes, a chemical used in paint thinners. Initially, contaminated waste was sent to sites in Texas and Michigan. Is that a common thing? It actually is. The types of sites that we manage our hazardous waste with here in the United States are fairly spread out. Less than half the states actually have a hazardous waste landfill that they can take this material and dispose of it. Now, this waste is in the form of soil and in the form of liquids. First of all, How do you dispose of hazardous liquids? Yeah, good question. Um, There's a fairly robust system in the U.S. set up right now about how to dispose of any hazardous waste, be it liquid or solid. Typically, liquids are going to perhaps have to be treated in some kind of treatment operation, whether it's biological or chemical. But the vast majority, believe it or not, gets deep well injected or underground injected. Oh, just kind of deep down in the earth without any kind of treatment. Well, usually they're going to have to meet whatever level of treatment that is required for that waste stream, depending on the type and the generator and what's in it. But then, yeah, it's injected deep down, supposed to be well below any drinking water aquifers. And how about contaminated soil? Typically, depending on the level of contamination, it'll go to a landfill, possibly, again, with some degree of treatment. Now, if we're talking about a contaminated soil that's a hazardous waste under the regulations, it's going to go to a hazardous waste landfill possibly have to be treated and then disposed of with the other wastes that are going into that facility. And I guess, what do we know about any risks from this disposal? Should any communities be worried about contamination in either East Palestine, where this happened, or other sites where this is being disposed now? Well, it's it's understandable for anybody who lived near one of these facilities to want to learn more and uh, get some sense of what the risk might be. Typically, the way these things are both permitted and then regulated, they have lots of controls in place to be able to protect groundwater, to be able to protect air and protect human health in the environment. 
course, there's no facility that has zero risk, but there's a lot that goes in place to try to minimize any type of release that would come out. Is there any risk of earthquakes? I recall years ago there was with wastewater from hydraulic fracturing from fracking. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, There's a growing awareness that when you design one of these facilities, you need to take into account any kind of seismic conditions. Most of these facilities have probably had to undergo through that process. Um, But in the future, as we begin to learn more and more, it might be that some seismic activities might uh, impact where you put these operations. But for the most part, the robust leak detection systems and groundwater monitoring are designed at least to be able to catch any kind of leak that might occur. Hmm. In the initial reporting, uh, the rail company Norfolk Southern made decisions or had a voice in decisions on where this material was disposed. Now the EPA has has weighed in. As you see it, is the process working as far as making these decisions? Well, without knowing all the specific details, it looks that the federal government following up on the state Ohio EPA has jumped in to make sure to address it, largely because it's a, a big uh, public outcry and something that's you know very much in the in the press. To my understanding, it's following the rules as written. That doesn't mean that the citizens shouldn't necessarily be concerned and aware of what's going on around them. But in terms of the management of the waste, it appears that it's following the protocols and the regulations that are in place to manage those safely. Hmm. Professor Townsend, you told our producer, Jill Ryan, that you're going to bring this up in, in class. What is the teaching moment that this case allows? Well, this is a class of students, environmental engineers, studying how we manage wastes. There's all the technical issues associated with what we'll look at, but I think a real important question is here, here is how and who is supposed to pay for this? What does the law say in the United States about making principal responsible parties pay for the cleanup of that, of that material? So we'll explore the different statutes and regulations that are going to require Norfolk Southern to pay for the cleanup of the site. Timothy Townsend is Professor of Environmental Engineering at the University of Florida. Timothy, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Scott. Coming up, as soon as this week, a federal judge in Texas could block access to the drug Mifepristone in what could be the most consequential legal ruling on abortion since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. More on the case after the break. Even before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, more than half of all abortions in the U.S. were induced with medication. And since that ruling, there's been a lot of attention on pills that can end pregnancies. The Food and Drug Administration first approved Mifepristone in 2000, and since then, abortion providers and the World Health Organization have said the pills can be used effectively on their own to end a pregnancy. But anti-abortion groups sued last year to revoke that FDA approval. Eleanor Klibanoff has been covering this for the Texas Tribune. She spoke to Scott earlier today. So this is one of two medicines used in medication abortions. What do we know about its use and its safety? Right. So mifepristone is used along misoprostol to terminate pregnancies. Um, You know, the drug was approved over two decades ago. It has been used since then very safely, very effectively, you know, with 
minimal adverse incidents and side effects. Mm -hmm. You know, almost since it was approved in 2000, anti-abortion groups have been trying to sort of crack down on how widespread it is. And in this case, you know, it's approval by the FDA at all. Yeah. And and I want to ask you about uh, about the arguments here. As you say, anti-abortion groups are challenging the FDA's approval, which goes back to 2000. What is the argument against the FDA approval? And what's the argument for? These groups are basically arguing that the FDA erred by approving this drug to begin with in the first place. And they have gotten together a group of anti-abortion doctors who argue that they have been harmed by having to treat people who are experiencing adverse effects of using these medications. On the other side, they're arguing that you know, growing bodies of evidence show that this drug is safe, it is effective, and that has actually led the FDA to loosen Mm -hmm. some of the restrictions on this drug over the years as more evidence has emerged about about the relative safety of this medication. Mm -hmm. Do we know, Eleanor, when a ruling from this Texas judge is, is going to come, given how much uncertainty seems to be out there? We do not know when this ruling is expected, but, you know, any time now is the short answer. Judge Kesmerich ordered the parties to file briefs uh, by Friday the 24th, just a couple days ago. And now that he has those briefs in hand, he can rule at any point. Now, the federal judge in this case has publicly spoken out opposing abortion. He was nominated by President Trump. If this judge in Texas sides with abortion opponents... What would it mean for access to mifepristone across the country? It sort of depends on what his actual ruling is. I mean, one version of this is that he orders the FDA to sort of revoke approval of mifepristone, which I've talked to FDA lawyers and people who study these issues. That would be a pretty extreme ruling. It would effectively remove mifepristone from the market. A lot of abortion clinics in states where the procedure remains legal are preparing to offer misoprostol-only abortions, so just using the other medication to terminate pregnancies. That is still an option, and it's used, you know, around the world to terminate pregnancies. You know, it is compared to the two-drug regimen, taking misoprostol alone does Mm -hmm. tend to come with more side effects and is overall less effective than taking them together. So it would definitely have an impact in states where abortion remains legal. And, you know, we sort of feel the impact across the entire country. Now, since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the Biden administration has allowed pharmacies to fill prescriptions for this drug instead of just doctors. There is a separate lawsuit challenging what pharmacies can do brought by the Texas attorney general. What is the argument in that case? What the Biden administration was trying to do there was actually protect access to these medications for people who use them for things other than abortion. So, you know, we've heard stories since the overturn of Roe v. Wade of women struggling to get these prescriptions filled to treat their Crohn's disease. Or, you know, in some cases, these drugs are used for miscarriage treatment. So we've seen a lot of reports of pharmacists in states like Texas where abortion is banned. They get a prescription from Mm -hmm. a doctor and then they're facing a lot more scrutiny The main thing about this lawsuit and sort of the through line between these two is, you know, despite this real historic victory at the Supreme Court, what we're seeing is that, you know, anti-abortion groups are not going to stop their efforts, both on the battles they've been fighting for decades, like the FDA approval of mifepristone, and also to really sort of try to block anything that the Biden administration does to increase or protect access to abortion. Mm -hmm. Eleanor, this is so complicated to follow, right? This is being played out in... Multiple cases in the legal system, it involves 
pharmacists, it involves the FDA. Does this create a legal limbo for women who are trying to understand what's going on, for reproductive health providers? It absolutely creates a lot of confusion. I think, you know, if you're confused and I'm confused, I am certain (laughs) that, you know, the average person out there is very confused. You know, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a survey. They found that almost half of Americans are unsure if medication abortion is legal in their state right now. You know, almost since the Supreme Court decision was leaked over the summer, there's just been this real state of confusion that I've talked to abortion providers it was really contributing to a culture of fear, confusion, and, you know, people just not accessing care that in some states they still have, you know, a legal right to. Eleanor Klebanoff is women's health reporter at the Texas Tribune. Eleanor, thanks very much. Thank you. Coming up, Lady Gaga, Mitski, David Byrne, and Rihanna are among the well-known nominees for an Oscar this year in the category of Best Original Song. After the break, Scott hears a bit from all six nominated songs and gets some predictions on who might win. Stick around. The Oscars are coming next month, so let's talk music as the nominees for Best Original Song. We do this every year on this program. And with us now is John Burlingame. He writes for Variety, and he teaches film scoring at the University of Southern California. John, welcome back. Thanks so much, Scott. So big picture, has this been a good year for original songs? Actually, in many ways, it's been a great year, starting with the 15-song shortlist that came out in December, uh, being now narrowed down to the five final nominees, which includes some pretty high-profile superstars and some people who are perhaps less high-profile but have an equal shot at winning. Well, let's start with a superstar. We're going to listen to the song Hold My Hand from Top Gun Maverick, which was the highest-grossing film of the past year. Lady Gaga wrote it with Blood Pop, and she sings vocals. John, Lady Gaga already has won Oscar for Best Original Song. Four years ago, she won for the song Shallow from A Star Is Born. Is she a favorite this time around, you think? I don't know if I would characterize her as a favorite, but I would say that what she wrote was a kind of 80s-style power ballad, which was absolutely perfect for Tom Cruise's blockbuster sequel. And it's more than just a song because it actually becomes the love theme in the score. So it's an integral part of the film. But as you point out, she's got an Oscar already. Does that come into play, you think? I think it does. I mean, this is her fourth nomination, and the fact that she's won once. And also, it's possible that because the movie's been out for so long, that the song itself is less in people's minds than it might have been if it was a late-year release. Mm. All right, another megastar in this category. Rihanna sings Lift Me Up from the film Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. She wrote it with Thames, Ryan Coogler, and Ludwig Göransson. And let's take a listen. Lift me up Hold me down Keep me close Safe and sound 
So this song, Lift Me Up, John, how does this sync up with the movie? Well, it comes at the very end of the picture, and it is very clearly in honor of the late Chadwick Boseman, who played T'Challa in the original Black Panther, and who we lost in 2020. So there's something about that. I mean, it is very much in tribute to his memory, coupled with the fact that, boy, you can't count out Rihanna when you think about the fact that her halftime Super Bowl show was actually watched by more people than the game itself which means she is very much on people's minds and could easily be the one that's checked off at Oscar time. Mm, yeah, well, that was the case at our editorial meeting. The, the people describing the Super Bowl as Rihanna separated by a little bit of football on either side. <laughs> um, I mean, do you think that could give her a boost, her you know notoriety from the Super Bowl? Does it work that way? It can work that way. First off, the song actually went to number two on the Billboard charts, so it was very much listened to in the last couple of months of the year. And now that she's sort of back in the uh, in the minds of people, uh, voting actually is very close to the Oscars itself, and so it's coming up quickly. And if she's in their minds, she could get checked off. Well, we talked about Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, which is nominated for Best Picture, as is Top Gun Maverick. Another nominated for Best Picture is Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, and its song is also nominated. Here it is. This is a life Free from destiny Not only what we sow Not only what we show That song is This Is A Life, performed by Mitski and David Byrne. They wrote it with Ryan Lott. John, Everything Everywhere All at Once has 11 Oscar nominations, more than any other film this year. But as far as the song, what do you like about it and how it fits in with the film? Well, it does fit in with the film. I remember Ryan Lott talking about it and saying that, uh, and giving David Byrne actually the credit for choosing a song which is sort of soft and gentle and warm after this sort of, you know, two hours and a half of madness in in the multiverse. And so I think it is the right song. Whether or not that will translate into votes at Oscar time is still, I think, up in the air. I tend to think that Son Lux, uh, of which Ryan Lott is a part, may have a better shot at score than song this year. And sometimes that's a factor in terms of people wanting to spread the wealth around a lot and choose a number of different films. So it's really hard to read whether or not this song really has a shot. Yeah. And then we have to talk, John, about songwriter Diane Warren. This is the 14th time she's been nominated for Best Original Song Oscar. And this year, she has the song Applause, performed by Sophia Carson in the film Tell It Like a Woman. So, Diane Warren, could this 
finally be the year. I mean, nominated 14 times without winning. Come on. Well, and also, this is her eighth nomination in the last nine years, <laughs> which is a, is a measure wow. of how much she's beloved in the, in the community, not just the music community, but in the film community. But here's the thing. Just a couple of months ago, Diane was voted an honorary Academy Award for her entire body of work. I think it was, in a way, sort of the Academy's apology for nominating her so often <laughs> and never actually giving her the statue. So I think that will play into this, coupled with the fact that very few people saw Tell It Like a Woman. So while the song, I think, is great, and as Diane told me for Variety, um, she needed a song that sort of tied together all seven segments of this anthology film. But I don't know about winning the Academy Award, especially now that she has won. Speaking of exposure... This last nominated song has a huge following on TikTok. It's Natu Natu from the film RRR, and it's going to get you dancing. Let's hear. Natu Natu is performed by Ram Churan and Enti Rama Rao Jr. And it's written by M.M. Kiravani and Chandra Bose. It already won the Golden Globe for Best Original Song, beating out Rihanna and beating out Lady Gaga. But it's gone viral on TikTok. That's got to help. Oh, yeah. I think that this has a very strong shot at winning. There's a whole bunch of factors that go into this, one of which is what I like to call the consolation prize factor. Hmm. which is very often Oscar voters go to the music categories to reward films that won't win anywhere else. And this might be exactly how it will work for Best Song this year. Because RRR was not entered as India's official entry for the Best International Film this year. So this is its only nomination. And it's such a sort of an exuberant kind of over-the-top winning kind of film that a lot of people have liked. And of course, this being its only nomination, and of course, if you've seen the sequence, you know, you can't help but want to get up and dance. Mm. And so I think it actually has a pretty strong shot because it would be a way to honor this film and the excitement of this number. We have been grooving to this year's Best Song nominees with John Burlingame. He writes for Variety and he teaches film scoring at USC. John, great pleasure, thanks very much. Thank you, Scott. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. You can find more stories at hereandnow.org. Today we've got a conversation with an actor who found out his voice was being used by artificial intelligence without his knowledge. Now he's speaking out about the risks of the technology. The idea that in my case, somebody's taken a library of stuff that I've recorded over six years is great, but it's now possible to do that with much less audio data, which is why I think this is worth talking about for everybody. Because it means you get a call from somebody who sounds like your mother, your sister, your, your partner, and you could be some way into a conversation with them before you realize that you're being fished and that the voice that you're hearing isn't really their voice. Head to hearandnow.org for more on that. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan, Catherine Swartz, and Emiko Tamagawa. Our editors are Todd Munt, Gabe Bullard, Julia Corcoran, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. 
you tomorrow.